We're going to turn to the book of Jonah again. And um, this morning we will commence reading in um, chapter, the end of chapter 1 and um, the rest of chapter 2. Verse 17 of chapter 1 of Jonah. Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah. Verse 17 says this, And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the stomach of the fish three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the stomach of the fish, and he said, I called out of my distress to the Lord, and he answered me. I cried for help from the depth of Sheol. You heard my voice, for you had cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the current engulfed me. All your breakers and your billows passed over me. So I said, I have been expelled from your sight. Nevertheless, I will look again toward your holy temple. Water encompassed me to the point of death. The great gulf, or the great deep engulfed me. Weeds were wrapped around my head. I descended to the roots of the mountains. The earth with its bars was around me forever. But you have brought me up from the pit, O Lord, my God. While I was fainting away, I remembered the Lord. And my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who regard vain idols forsake their faithfulness, but I will sacrifice to you with the voice of thanksgiving that which I have vowed I will pay. Salvation is from the Lord. Then the Lord commanded the fish and it vomited Jonah up onto the dry land. I wonder if you ever feel your situation is so hopeless and entrapped that God could never bail you out. In this chapter of Jonah, we will see that the belly of the fish is a lot safer place than being on board a ship en route to Tarshish or in the depths of the sea. That's because the prayer room that God provided Jonah was a safe place and was a place that he ordained for him to repent and pray. So be encouraged, as long as you can still pray, there's still hope. The last two messages from the first chapter of Jonah had us entering into this captivating story, this narrative, and and we saw what happened when a sovereign God meets a disobedient missionary. We saw that in verses 1 to 3. And then we saw the outcome of Jonah's disobedience where a disobedient missionary meets a sovereign God. We had that in verses 4 to 16. And the last we saw of Jonah was him being chucked overboard. Remember that? And it wasn't on the captain's commands or the sailor's commands. It was on Jonah's command himself. Throw me overboard. You see, this suicidal death wish that Jonah had was because he knew that the supernatural storm that they had been going through was a result of his disobedience to God. So he chose death rather than to repent and obey 
God's call to preach to pagans at the city of Nineveh. He had this prejudice against these pagans and didn't want to see them converted because he knew God, according to chapter 4, would save them and could save them. And so Jonah's heart had become so hardened that he didn't want to see anyone get converted. This is one recalcitrant mystery we have here. But the irony is clear as we have looked at. God chose to use this useless missionary in spite of his rebellious death wish to do exactly that, to convert pagans. And so Jonah's Mediterranean dip proved to be the most powerful sermon ever preached about the true God because instantly he was thrown overboard. What happened? The sea, the storm became flat. El Finito finished. So while God was on this calm deck saving souls, we left Jonah in verse 15 floundering in the depths of the Mediterranean. So firstly, Jonah was commissioned We have that in verse 1 to 2. And then we saw his disobedience in verse 3. And then we looked at the consequences, our last message from verses 4 to 16. And now we will look at God's intervention and Jonah's deliverance in chapter 2. I put all these graphics up here. You may think it's childish, but wow, God's a graphic God, isn't he? He gives us amazing stories. He goes into detail. Jesus was graphic when he preached. He talked about the things that were happening and wow, he put heaps of picture images out there. Well, I can't do that. This is the best I can do. <laughs> and so as we said at the beginning, this whole narrative is not so much a story about Jonah, right? It's more and primarily a story, get this, about God. And one, one of the key truths that we learn about God is that, that he is the sovereign, supreme Lord of all. And it's good to know that, right? It's really good to know that. He's not only sovereign over creation, but here we see in this chapter he is also sovereign over all that lives in creation. His creation. Because we see that God, what did he do? He appointed a great fish. Forget about the whale thing, or whether it's a whale or not a whale. It could have been, Whatever. He appointed a great fish. We see that in verse 17. He's in control, folks. This is what it says. He's in control. In verse 4, by the way, he hurled a great storm upon the sea. And here he appoints a great fish. And the same word for appoint is used three more times in chapter 4. He says he appoints a plant to grow, then he appoints a worm to eat the plant, and then he appoints an east wind that scorched the plant. So this great fish here was not what we might tag a mere coincidence or a matter of chance or a a stroke of luck kind of thing. No, because there's no such movement in God's reckoning. No such movement. He is the sovereign God and the supreme control of the universe and all that is in it. And here he sovereignly intervenes in the affairs of one man There had been a bit of collateral happening as well. Remember, the others got saved on deck, praise God. But here he intervenes in the affairs of one man and he goes to the trouble and goes to the great length of appointing a a fish, a great fish, to bring about his purposes. Don't you love God? 
You see, God is not done with Jonah yet, folks. God is not going to give Jonah the privilege of dying like he wanted to. As far as God is concerned, this ain't going to happen. So God commands one of his big sea creatures to go into action. And Jonah ends up in this big sea creature's belly for three days and three nights. Imagine being swallowed like that. Some people have a problem with believing this. I don't. I hope you don't. Firstly and primarily because God's word records it so. And God is true, right? God's word is truth. God cannot lie. Besides, we know that Jesus spoke of this event. He didn't spoke as, as some myth. He, used it, he spoke of the facts of this. He says in Matthew 12 and verse 40, when he was referring to his death that was soon to happen, he says, For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the whales, in the, in the fish's belly, great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. He says that as a fact. And if you really want, let's get another perspective on this. I borrowed this, I saw this, I thought it was quite good. You know, if life can be preserved comfortably for nine months in the womb of a mother, surely it's not too hard for God to uncomfortably preserve a man in the belly of a fish for three days or three nights? Good argument if you want to get in that track, right? So although this slippery water slide into this fish's belly was... It was a respite from Jonah's drowning, by the way. You know, as we've read here through this prayer here, he was just about at death's door. The weeds were wrapped around him. He had sunk to the bottom. There's all sorts of things. He was just about out to it. And so there was some respite in going down the slippery water slide. But all was not well in Jonah's world still. He was still alive, he had air to breathe, obviously, but he was now entombed in this living, smelly grave. But God's plan was right on track. This fishy grave did its work. It immediately, what did it do? It immediately pushed the stop button on Jonah's disobedient streak. This divine intervention put Jonah into a situation where he began to think about God. I don't know if you've ever been in, not that kind of situation, but other situations similar. It does that, doesn't it? It should do. Like how true it is when predicaments or, or you know, those moments when you hear people saying, when my whole of life flashed before my eyes where situations completely out of their control, hits a person and, and their very living person, their self, is, it's threatened, their life is threatened. Surely at times it's only right to think of the Lord or think of our Creator at that time, right? Even self-professed atheists have been known to call upon God in such extremities. Well, this is what Jonah did. And by the way, this was the first right thing he had done in a while. He prays. 
It says in verse 1, Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish. I love that. It wasn't just the Lord, it was the Lord his God. And as we will see, he prays exactly what God wanted him to pray. God was not ready to let Jonah go just yet, folks. By the way, just like he is patient toward us, who are sinners, and as we've heard this morning, who are wicked, and when we disobey him, and he's patient towards us, and will even go to the lengths of disciplining those whom he loves, what for? To produce the fruits of righteousness according to Hebrews chapter 13. That's what he does. And so Jonah, in his darkest prayer room, prays, which takes up all of chapter 2 except for verse is 1 to 10. And so this prayer, it's a psalm really, uh, but it's a psalm in an autobiography type of poetic form and it describes how a disobedient prophet of God finds true repentance toward God in his most difficult circumstances. That's what it does. And so as we follow the text, Context rules, because this chapter gives so much attention toward the prayer, it's only right that we should give attention toward his prayer as well. And if you don't know how to pray, this prayer has some valuable principles to follow. Jonah's prayer has four characteristics, I believe, here, that, I, that they should be really part of our prayers, especially when we get into troubles through our selfish disobedience. And none of us are exempt from that. First of all, the first characteristic of Jonah's prayer is that Jonah was honest in his prayer. And as we've said, without a doubt, Jonah was not out of the woods yet. The sea billows that had rolled over him, they were history, yes. But it was a little bit like, we might say, going from the frying pan into the fire. Jonah by this time fully understood that God was dealing justly with him in this fish slimy grave and he understood that this was all of the Lord's doing. He sees that though he had, he has foolishly tried to flee from the Lord's presence, right at that moment the Lord was very present even in his fishy tomb. It's here he came to an end to himself. Yeah, it's a little bit like another person in the Bible. Remember the prodigal son? He decided to disobey the, the customs and the laws and the wishes of his father. And the prodigal son, let me have my inheritance. I want to go and live it up. And so that's what he did. And you know the story. He came to an end of himself. He came to an end of himself. Feeding pigs and eating their food. And he came to understand that his dire consequences were because of his sin. And this is his response, the prodigal son's response. It's recorded in Luke 15, 18, 19. This is what he says. I will get up and go to my father and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. Likewise, Jonah acknowledges and declares his miserable situation and calls upon God as Heavenly Father. Another ironical part, he desires to respond 
like those pagans who were converted on the deck above him. He's been cast into the deep, the floods have engulfed him, and the peer that to Jonah that, that God had expelled, it says here. That Hebrew word means God had driven him out of his sight. That's what it appeared to Jonah has, we have in verse 4. He understood, barring a miracle, the dry land above him was simply a blessing of the past. Folks, Jonah was super honest in pouring out his miseries to the Lord. But more than that, more than that, he was also honest in acknowledging that these miseries were sent upon him by God. Look at verse 3. It says, you had me cast into the depths. It wasn't the sailors. He wasn't blaming the sailors. It wasn't the short straw he drew, you know, when they cast lots. It was but you. And also, in the end of verse 3, it is your breakers and billows that rolled over me. The sailors and their cast lots were mere technicalities in Jonah's book. Jonah knew that without a doubt, his sin was the reason God was on his case like a hound from heaven. He knew that. Jonah's physical circumstances were desperate enough, but worse still, folks, worse still was to be under the disciplining hand of God. That was terror beyond words. So Jonah prays. He pours out all his miseries as well as acknowledging that they are deserved, God-sent miseries. Folks, Jonah was honest in his prayers. Let's pause there. Are we that honest in our prayer? Am I that honest in my prayer? I ask this because I believe there can be a tendency to pray without honestly acknowledging God's sovereign action in all that comes our way. I mean everything. Yes, we gladly bless the Lord in the good times, don't we? And rightly we should. But in the bad times, I honestly believe we too easily give them the flick. We ignore them. We bypass them. We would rather brush them off and say, oh, that's just life. Or it's just one of those things that happens. Or it's this person's fault or that person's fault. There's this tendency to ignore the providential and disciplinary actions of God in our lives. Why is that? Can I suggest that it's our prideful hearts in action here? And we're not willing to admit that God is good all the time and even in his goodness he, he pursues us by being seemingly tough and rough on us. It may be, folks, it may be that that difficulty, that trial, that test is sent by him not just to test your faith and your loyalty and your devotion to him but to discipline us so that we will what? Be like Jonah here, repent and obey. God never changes. If he did it once, he'd do it again, right? Because this is exactly what happened. 
to Jonah. And I believe it is a healthy thing, folks. It's a healthy thing for believers to be like David of old, King David of old, who learned with deep humility to keep short accounts with God, especially when things go pear-shaped or went pear-shaped in his life like they do ours. To be honest and cry out to the Lord as David did, Psalm 139, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try and know my anxious thoughts and see if there be any hurtful or wicked way in me and lead me in the everlasting way. Is that the kind of humble prayer we come to with God? Folks, nothing happens by chance. When, you know, whenever I get sick, and forgive me for losing myself in the illustration, whenever I get sick, whenever I am low, low, whenever difficult circumstances come, I am forcibly reminded of the Lord who is in control. And I pray. Do you? It's in these times. It's, it's been never good, by the way. It's never good to, to allow the circumstances to become our only focus. And that's what often can happen. And that's depression material, I might say. I'm quickly reminded of my own frailty in times like this. My lack of devotion and of the sin which so easily entangles me that the writer of the Hebrews speaks about in chapter 12, verse 1. I'm reminded of those things. And so I pray, hopefully honestly, is that how you live and pray? Now I know that every trial we experience, every difficulty that we come across, is not because of personal sin. I am not saying that. And the Bible doesn't teach that. It teaches that the Christian life is promised to be a time of testing. And James says, doesn't say if trials will come. It talks about when trials come. And so as Christians, we're expected to have trials that will test our faith. But there is a vast difference, can I say, in suffering for doing what is right than suffering for doing what is wrong. If you go to 2 Peter, chapter 3, verse 17, that makes that very clear. We've got a flicker on this thing. And this was Jonah's case. He was suffering because wrong. And so let's be honest in our prayers about the consequences of disobedient decisions and never ignore God's compassionate, disciplining hand, right? Never ignore that. And always take into consideration in our honesty as we come before him. Let's be honest prayers because God only ever judges rightfully, right? He only ever judges rightfully and his judgment and discipline, listen to this, his judgment and discipline on his children are always tempered with mercy. Praise God for that, right? Always. And that is very prominent in the theme of the book of Jonah. Secondly, we're back on track. Jonah was repentant in prayer. So he was honest and he was a repentant in prayer. And this is important because we live in a day where being truly repentant goes against the grain of much of Christian culture. Many of our churches where health, wealth and prosperity are promoted, where success is measured by numbers, where preaching is, is motivated by pep talks, etc., or motivational pep talks, where business models are the driving force behind churches, 
where all this sort of stuff happens so often, sin and the need of repentance is often ignored, if not completely excluded. I was listening to a preacher a few weeks back. My wife was as well. And uh, this man was eloquent in his oratory. He was convincing in his persuasiveness. Doing this very, very thing here. His message to thousands was, your destiny is within you and the secret of success is to find it and use it for God. Oh, he mentioned God. What on earth is that message? It certainly pampers to the ego, doesn't it? Wow, I've got what it takes to glorify God, to please God. All I've got to do is reach in, whatever that means, and find it. Destiny is in my... That's a whole lot different, folks, from what the psalmist taught in in Psalm 51, verse 17. You know what he says there? The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Well, what about Isaiah, the prophet, who says in chapter 57, verse 15, For thus says the high and exalted one who lives forever, whose name is holy, I dwell on a high and holy place and also with the contrite and lowly of spirit in order to revive the spirit of the lowly and revive the hearts of the contrite. And then again, that's, what, that's where we want to be, right? Contrite and holy. Because the Lord loves those kind of people. He blesses those kind of people. And again in Isaiah 66 and verse 2, For my hand made all these things, thus all these things came into being, declares the Lord. Listen to this. But to this one I will look, to him who is humble and contrite of spirit and who trembles at my word. Don't you love that? How clearer can that be? And this is where Jonah is right now, folks. This is where he was. He was humble. He was contrite. That word means crushed and crippled. That's what it means. And he's trembling under the weight of a sin and the disciplining hand of God. And then again, of course, you will remember the teaching of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5 to 7. And he taught the way forward and up is first down. That's what he taught. Not reaching in and finding your own destiny. Exactly not. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Verse 3 and 4 of chapter 5. That is, those who are broken and crushed and mourn in spirit over their spiritual bankruptcy before God, they shall find rest. They will be comforted and those are the people who will be blessed by God. And that's where Jonah is right now in our story. First he acknowledges that all his dilemmas were by God's hand and he deserved every one of them. That's what he acknowledges in verse 8 where he says, those who regard vain idols forsake their faithfulness. Now that word for faithfulness, I mentioned this the other night at our prayer meeting, the word faithfulness here is the word Hebrew word hesed. Okay? And that means in Hebrew, it means steadfast love or never failing covenanted love. So Jonah is fessing up here, he's confessing that supplanting God with any personal agenda is plain straight out idolatry which is abandoning God's hesed steadfast love. And that's exactly what Jonah had done. Now folks, that is a serious predicament and we need to be warned that nothing has changed. 
Jonah knew that he was outside the safety net of God's Hesed love and that terror crushed him and so he falls before God in repentance. That's what he does. Note here at this point that he never asked for anything. He didn't try and cut a deal with God. God, if you get me out of here, this is what I will do. He never cut a deal with God. No, no, no. There were no add-ons. There's no add-ons in in true repentance. It's all about casting ourselves upon the mercy of God. And that's what Jonah did. And folks, if any of you here this morning are not true born-again believers, if you're not a true Christian, that's exactly what God commands you to do before him in faith for his salvation. Repent. Remember Jesus' message when he was on earth? He said this in Matthew 4 and 17. He launches out in his public ministry. And his voice was, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. How we need, even as believers, even as believers, to express our heartfelt repentance in our prayers. Being motivated by what? By God's Hesed love toward us. Next we turn to Jonah was thankful in his prayer. So, so far we have learnt that his prayer was honest and was repentant, but now he is thankful. And we might well ask, what could he be thankful for? After all, he's not out of the woods yet. And if you look at verse 7, we see that Jonah remembered the Lord. While I was fainting away, I remembered the Lord. The Lord had performed a miracle in saving him from this watery grave and now he's inside this huge fish belly and it was here on the brink of passing out he remembered the Lord. But what was or what could Jonah be thankful for? As verse 9 indicates. Jonah was in no way thankful for his physical deliverance at this point because he hadn't been delivered and had no promise that he was going to be delivered. As far as he knew, he might have well thought, okay, all it's over, but... So what could he be thankful for? Jonah is thankful in this dire predicament because he knew that this was God's grace in action. In other words, he was thankful that God went to such lengths and put him through such extremity that God chased him. Chased him. At this time of terror he was experiencing, it was God's agent in bringing him back to what? Bringing him back to repentance and faith. That's a good place to be, right? That's a good place to be. So Jonah was thankful for that. Such were the lengths that God went to bring this one rebellious sinner back into his favour and the shelter of his Hesed love. My dear friend, Jonah was thankful for the spiritual blessing he had been brought to. God turned him from rebellion to call on the name of the Lord again. Jonah was thankful for his spiritual salvation, his restoration. Are you continually thankful for that to the Lord in your prayers? We should be. Scriptures tell us that born-again believers are blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies in Christ Jesus. Can you be thankful, can I ask? Only true believers are safe in the love of God. 
Otherwise, you are, you are still right now, not inside that love, but the scriptures tell us that you are under the wrath of God. John 3.36 says, He who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son will not see love, life, but the wrath of God abides on him. So it's not something yet future, it's something yet now, but you're still in your sins and you're outside of that safety net of God's love. May we all know the ongoing miracle of God's salvation, of bringing us to faith and repentance. Finally, Jonah was hopeful in his prayer. You see, folks, when genuine repentance and faith takes place in a person's life, one of the immediate outcomes is hope. I was discussing this with Brett just this morning. The Thessalonian believers, as children of God, once who were pagan idol worship, three things characterised them. It was faith, love and hope. And that's what happens. We have a new hope as believers. Our hope is Christ and all that he involves and, 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 and what that entails. Not just about a wonderful place of gold streets in heaven, but our hope is Christ. As he died for us and paid for our sin, he's coming again to receive us to himself. Our hope is Christ. And that's a new hope and a wonderful hope to have, right? It's not a hope that may or may not happen. It is a sure hope. Paul reminds the Thessalonians of this in 2 Thessalonians 2.16. He says, Now may the Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who has loved us and given us eternal comfort and good hope by grace. The unbeliever, and if you're an unbeliever here this morning, you have no hope according to the Scriptures. Ephesians 2 verse 12 says, Having no hope without God in the world. That's a serious situation. That's a serious circumstance to be. You might say, oh yes, but I do have hope. I've got, oh, I've got my family. I've, I hope in some religion. I hope in this. I hope in that. We've heard everything apart from God's word is failing, folks. It fades. It's futile. Well, Jonah had returned to the Lord in repentance and faith in that fish's belly and now his living hope in God has been revitalised. He lost that. You kind of give it the flick. You know, I'm out of here. I'm going to Tarshish. But it's been revitalized here. And he gives testimony to this in his, in his prayer in verse 9. Note the words. He says, I will sacrifice to you. I will pay the vow which I have vowed. How on earth could he do that in a fish's belly? Obviously he couldn't. He couldn't light a fire and kill some animal and sacrifice it. Ridiculous. But he prayed that in anticipation, anticipating that his escape from death, this death trap that the Lord had put him into, was, if the Lord so wished, completely possible. In other words, Lord, I am yours, I don't want to die in this valley, but uh, you place me here and salvation is from the Lord. You can get me out of here. My only hope is in you. I long to be just like those pagans that you converted on that ship where they worshipped and paid their vows. But I can't do that down here. Jonah recognises God's sovereign power and with a renewed hope in God says, God, I know you can do it. You can deliver me. I know you can. And he casts themselves in the mercy of God. 
knowing that if he's not delivered, God is still sovereign, God is still good. But you know what, folks? God honors faith. Genuine faith, I'm talking about. God honors faith. God wanted Jonah to repent and, look, and, and, and took him to such lengths to bring that about. And so now God responds to genuine faith. You know how he did that? He spoke to the fish. Sometimes God does that. I remember another story in the Bible, he spoke to an ass. And the ass spoke back to Balaam, remember? But here he speaks to a fish. He commands the fish. And then another ironical miracle happens. This fish, obedient to its creator, vomits Jonah out into dry land. Here was a man who paid a fare to go to Tarshish, was now having a free entry onto dry ground. Imagine the scene, if you like. It's just amazing. Why that beast never beached itself? I don't know. Maybe it did. But anyway, Jonah is safe on dry ground. God rescued him for his purposes. He vomited him out. If you do a word search, which I won't do now, on the word vomit right through the scriptures, the only time it has positive connotations is this one here. Every other one has negative. The one that will probably come to your mind and the one that comes to my mind is in Revelation chapter 2 where he speaks to the church of Laodicea. They were neither hot and cold and God says, I will spew, I will vomit you out of my mouth. Well here, it brought about Jonah's rescue. In closing, what can we learn for this? What can we learn? You may be reluctant to to, and even disobedient toward the will of God. You may even want to die rather than obey God's will. Be warned. Don't mess with God. Because God is gracious and he will, if he so wishes, go to extreme circumstances to turn you around and get you to do what he wants you to do. He will. He can do that. Every believer, folks, every believer is called to be a missionary. You got that? Every believer is called to be a missionary at some level or other. It's not optional thing. It's by divine command. We have that in the Matthew 28 in the Great Commission. And God is in the business of recovering unwilling missionaries. Now that's hopeful, right? Wow, that's hopeful. After all, if if we have failed and messed up in the past, that means God can still use me. God can still use you. So don't dwell on your past or whatever you may have done. Just come clean and be honest and be repentant and thankful. Get back on the right track. Then on the other hand, if you're still running to your Tarshish, which you may be, in various ways, if you're still running to your Tarshish, God may well take you to extremely painful and trying circumstances to turn you around. He can do so if he wishes. Folks, there are plenty of Christians, sad to say, 
who have gone on to Tarshish. They have run from God and they are still running. What about you? What about you? May we come to the Lord in honesty, with repentance and thankfulness, and put our hope and trust in him, for salvation is from the Lord, and in none other. So, here we leave Jonah tackered out on the beach. Not sure exactly where, but next week, that's the end of Act 1, next week we will see, God willing, the greatest revival in history. May God add a blessing uh, to his word this morning. Shall we pray? Father in heaven, we do give thanks for your word this morning. Well, Father, we thank you that you see fit to tell us these wonderful stories and have recorded them in your word that will never fail and will endure forever and ever. You know how we work because you created us. We love stories. We follow their train of thought. We see their main actors. We see the protagonist and the antagonist. And we see the issue. Lord, help us to see in this story that you are a God of compassion and patience and will pursue those whom you love. And help us to understand that if we are running and if we are disobedient and unwilling to obey you, Father, bring us to repentance and faith, we pray. So, Father, we commit our ways to you. We pray that this week will be a week where we just think about you, consider you, and be taken up with you in this working week. Commit ourselves to you in the name of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. Amen.